Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. Thank you. It's really good to see you. Um, Casey and I, we were driving up the hill. I was telling some of the uh, people in, in our, our morning meeting uh, for this, this service that uh, as the kids were driving up the hill, they're like, oh yeah, we go to Coast Bible Church. That's right. That's right. So they were starting to remember DJ and Haley and Nate and Lucy and Jakey and all their friends and uh, many more that I missed. Um, but it's, it's really, really good uh, to be back um, I've missed you, and I hope that you've missed us a little bit too. Um, we had uh, we had a really, really good sabbatical, and uh, if you don't mind, um, I'd like to tell you a little bit about it. Can I tell you about it? All right. Um, the first thing I want to say uh, about this sabbatical um, was thank you. Uh, thank you. Very, very, very much for um, this time of rest. Uh, I can honestly say that uh, I needed it. Uh, I somewhat asked for it to the board. Uh, They'll recall I I kind of came to some of the board members a number of months ago and said, uh, I think I need a little bit of a break. And uh, the elders were very gracious to me and to Casey. And they immediately... uh, set about some plans to make sure that I could receive some, some rest and some refreshment. Um, I want to thank uh, Tom Bennett, Associate Pastor Tom, uh, for all of his good work while I was away. Uh, I listened to all of his sermons. They were excellent. Uh, I had one <clears throat> parishioner comment that his message on happiness uh, was incredible, one of the best you've ever done, the fir- particularly that first message on happiness. And I listened to that one as well and thought it was just dynamite. And so if you want to learn about the happiness of God, do go back and, and, and listen to some of Tom's messages there. They were, they were wonderful. I want to thank Ray and Lloyd and others who stepped up to preach and all, all the elders and all of you for uh, the gift of this time of rest. Um, it was good for me. And uh, I knew that uh, it's exactly what the Lord wanted for me as I walked through these two months of rest. Um, some might wonder, you know, why, why did you ask for a break? Why did you need a break? Uh, there were a few reasons for it. Uh, the first was uh, just carrying the burdens of so many of you. Um, something that I actually really love to do. I don't want to ever give the impression that I don't want to hear what's going on in your lives. But the difference is, when you hear what's going on in almost everyone's lives, um, it, can, it can start weighing you down. And that started happening for me. I started bearing a little too many of the burdens. And as Tom brought me up to speed on the last two months of ministry, I was glad that he was able to bear those many, many burdens. Um, and I, I've heard it was, a, it was a, an eventful two months for him and for the whole uh, elder board. And I'm glad that they're shouldering that load with me now. Can't, carrying all those burdens leaves any man or woman dry and uh, a little bit beat up. And I was feeling a little bit uh, like that as I would try to prepare for Sunday and teach and lead and guide the church. I, I kind of felt a little bit dry, a little bit on empty. And worst of all, I would come home uh, with really only fumes left in my tank for my family, for my wife, and for my kids. 
And so the goal of my sabbatical was first and foremost just to rest. Just to rest and replenish. I unplugged from everything. Uh, Those of you who sent me emails on July 1st, I'm sorry, I'm just now reading them. Uh, those of you who sent me text messages and this, that, and the other, I probably didn't get back to you, uh, and I, I'm sorry for that, but that was intentional, and I just, uh, the few that I did respond, I said, ask Tom, ask Tom. <laughs> I unplugged, and, uh, and it was good, and I but might add, for any of you, um, to unplug for a short amount of duration as you can, even if it's just a week even if it's just a week or two, to, uh, to stop email, stop Facebook, stop the text messages and the Instagrams and all the endless things that busy up our lives. Try one week off and you'll notice something about yourself. You'll notice a difference. Restoring, a, a, a time of restoration coming into your life that you may not have had for a time. I was able to do that thanks to you for two months. And I can tell you I I didn't miss a lot of it. Um, Of course, some things are necessary. But as much as you're able to, uh, when you get opportunity, unplug from some of the things that cause you to be just busy. And listen to the Lord again. So my first goal of a sabbatical was rest, replenishment. My second goal was to reconnect with my family. Uh, reconnect with Casey and the kids. My third goal was to reconnect with God. To reconnect with God. The first two were kind of easy. Rest, reconnecting with family, that was, those were the easy goals to achieve and very enjoyable, I might add. I found rest, I slept well, I took better care of my body. Uh, what I ate, I exercised more uh, because I had the time to do so. I didn't have uh, late nights on Saturday nights preparing for a sermon. Instead, I kind of chuckled as I thought of poor Tom getting ready for Sundays. I didn't wake up early Sunday morning trying to put the finishing touches on things. Instead, I woke up Sunday mornings wondering where I was going to go to church. Well, I had more of a plan than that. Reconnecting with family was also a joy. Uh, We spent this whole two months together. Casey and the kids and me. I took Bennett to Taekwondo. We took the kids to the park. We went swimming. We had almost every meal together. I decided at one point during the sabbatical, I decided I was going to devote a whole day to saying yes to whatever Bennett said and then the next day to whatever Mallory said. I was just going to say yes, I'll do it. To whatever they said, I gave each of them a day. I lasted about... Two hours with Bennett and about 30 minutes with Mallory. I lasted a little bit more than that. But parents, here's an exercise. Say yes, within reason, to everything your child asks of you in an afternoon. Daddy, can we read a book? Yes. Daddy, can we watch this? Yes. Can we go outside? Yes. Can we play dolls? Yes. Can we build Legos? Yes. I had never done that before. Take one afternoon and say yes to everything your kids have asked of you. They kind of looked at me funny after a while. 
What are you doing, Dad? And Amelia, I, I was going to do this with Amelia too, but she's only 15 months and all she wanted to do was eat. So that was easy. We spent so much time together, we took two road trips, one to see my parents and then a longer road trip, a five-state road trip through Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, and back to California, 3,200 miles. And the kids were amazing. Uh, our kids win first prize for, for best kids in the car. They really, really travel well, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that because I know how that can be for some families. Uh, we went to a, a, a a friend's farm in Oregon. We toured Seattle. We saw Matt and Alicia Orndorf, old friends of Coast Bible Church in Spokane. We really had missed them. We saw cousins in Boise and friends just east of Sacramento. And we spent a final two nights in Angels Camp, California, off Highway 49, a, play, a town I would highly recommend. Beautiful, historical, <clears throat> gold country. Uh, learn about the gold rush out there, and, and we had so much fun together. Most importantly to me, I spent some precious time with, with my wife. Many have asked, many, many have asked, Casey in particular, isn't it annoying having your husband home all day long, every day for two months? She got that question a lot from people. And uh, I'm glad to say her answer was no. Uh, we, we are each other's best friends. And uh, neither of us regretted any moment of these past 60 days. We spent every single one of them together. We don't tire of being together. And I know that's rare in any marriage. We deepened our relationship. My wife would, would frequently remark to me how much she had missed me. Uh, because I had become so busy and carrying so many others' burdens and yet sometimes walking home with very little to give. And both of our parents were especially gracious to us. They watched our kids uh, for extended periods of time so that we could get away even on a little uh, trip to Mexico that we were so grateful for. So like I said, achieving my first two goals, rest and reconnecting with family, those were easy. And those were fun. And, and those did not come hard for me. But then came my third and final goal. And that was the goal of reconnecting with God. When a university professor is given a sabbatical, there are certain expectations that is given to him or her by their department chair or by the university president. They award a sabbatical, sometimes six months, sometimes a year long, to a university professor, and they are expected to go, generally speaking, to an area where they can study, uh, maybe another university where there's a, a, a sizable library. And they're expected to go to that other university, that other place, and they're expected to come back with a great, a great work, a great scholarly work, one that will wow everyone in the academy. And likewise, on a, I think a smaller scale, a pastor who is given a sabbatical by his church is somewhat expected to return having received a renewed and fresh word from the Lord that will have dramatically changed him personally and will lead to great transformation and revival in the church at large. If those were your expectations and hopes for me, 
I'm sorry to inform you that there was no such grand spiritual experience that happened to me while I was away. Because of this, I return to you with a small measure of guilt. It would seem that I should have had at least one blast of heavenly vision while I sat quietly before the Lord this summer. That feeling of guilt was unfortunately deepened. It was bolstered by one pastor that I interviewed this summer who told me that a pastor who is dry and running on fumes probably ought not be a pastor at all. All but saying to me that my sabbatical was really unnecessary, especially for my age. That pastor's words did not ring very true to me that day. For no pastor is a superman, and any minister claiming to be so is probably not a pastor I would want to fall under. But still, poisonous speech is very hard to rub off. And Satan was uh, readily at work, actually, these past two months, trying as best he could to take my eyes off of Jesus. For example, each time we would return home from one of our little road trips or, or, or little vacations, each time we would come home, something dramatic would happen that would cause us to have stress and grief. Uh, upon returning from Mexico, I, I walked into my garage and I walked into a pool of water everywhere. And I looked at the outside refrigerator and I realized it was off. Popsicles in the outside refrigerator are not such a good idea when the refrigerator is off. There was popsicle goop and ooze coming all the way out of our refrigerator. And I looked behind the refrigerator and sure enough, the, uh, the breaker had, had tripped. And while we were away, the refrigerator had melted all of the goods outside in the garage. Three weeks ago, having returned from our large five-state trip, 3,200 miles, we came back from Seattle and Spokane, and I noticed that my office carpet was wet at home. I looked down below me, and it was, it was wet, and I looked around, and I realized that, that there, we had a leak we had a leak behind the bookcases, and if, for those of you that have been in my house, the bookcases are very filled with books, and it's extremely heavy, and, and, and so we had to move all of the books out, move all of the bookcases out to access where this leak was coming from, and we finally identified it. We had to rip out drywall, the, the, the contractors did. I had uh, an old friend of Coast, Tommy Long, who I would highly recommend. He is a wonderful a wonderful helper in this endeavor. Anytime you have a leak, call Tommy Long. And he, he, he and his crew, they just got everything situated. They pulled it all out. They fixed the leak. They dried it up. But boy, I tell you, my office is not an office right now. Even right now, it's still absolute chaos. Books are everywhere. Half of it's packed up, and we're still trying to figure out what we're going to do as the carpet was somewhat damaged, the wood was damaged in the hallway, and it was just a big mess pinhole leak in the copper piping. At every turn, it seemed like the enemy was trying to take my eyes off of reconnecting with God and onto the petty things of this world. He knew that every time I came back home, that would be a wonderful time to attack, to cause me to be unsettled in our home. 
But he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And, it just when it, and just when it seemed that I wasn't learning or growing at all in my desire to reconnect with God, two things happened. Two things happened this summer. The first thing that happened was I got a terrible headache. A terrible headache. The day after all of my office drywall had been ripped out, I was on the couch wreathing the next day for the entirety of the day. Very few of you know this, and not even some of the elders know this, but I've been dealing with chronic head problems for nearly three years now. Headache is really a a bad description of what I have. It's more like a fog, pressure, that is extremely intense in my head, at the top of my head and, and toward the front. It results in headaches, but it's often in the form of, of, of a great fog or great pressure, a dull pain that results in me, for me, in an inability to think or process. It doesn't happen every day, of course, these past three years, or else you surely would have noticed. But it does come in great waves and last for long periods of time for me. Paul spoke of a thorn in his flesh that perpetually handicapped him as he tried to live and minister. This has been my thorn. I have sought out many doctors, tried many different remedies and medicines, And like Paul, I've asked God to remove this thorn from my head for the past three years to no avail. God has said thus far, no. And that is, he said no until these past few weeks. But when the pinhole leak occurred in my office, an event that I was sure was simply an attack of Satan, an evil distraction, that Satan used to, to, to distract me and cause me to have stress and anxiety and worry. But God took that pinhole leak and he turned it for good. Because the day after all the drywall was pulled out and the dust and the pollens and the fungus and the toxins were released into the air, I was laid out on the couch with the worst head pain I had ever had in three years. But this pain was actually a blessing. Because for the first time in three years, Casey and I were able to pinpoint, to isolate a part of the source of the thorn in my head. And my doctor and I are now working together on completely isolating the cause of my health problems based on all the dust and the pollens and the fungus and the toxins that were likely hidden within my own walls of my house. I believe we are very, very, very close to a solution now. And Casey and I, uh, well, she's planning some very nice Christmas presents for me, some early Christmas presents. They include air purifiers, a HEPA vacuum cleaner, and an air duct cleaning, which every man really wants for Christmas. That's right. Suffice to say, if you wish to learn one lesson from me, As a pastor who's gone on a sabbatical, a not so spiritually ecstatic sabbatical, I have this lesson for you. 
God uses pain to bring about deliverance and salvation. He did it with Jesus. He gave his own son to die on a Roman cross that three days later he might rise from the dead and give you and me deliverance and salvation by faith in him. Jesus' pain, our deliverance. And it took a small amount of pain on my part, a pinhole leak in a wall, and a 24-hour period of being laid out on a couch for me to realize that this had just opened the door to why I have been experiencing what I've been experiencing. And I believe that deliverance for me is very, very close at hand. This experience was one way, just one way, that I reconnected with God on my sabbatical. But there was at least one more way in which God grabbed hold of me this summer. With my entire office boxed up and in chaos from the pinhole leak, Casey and I were making last-minute preparations for our trip to Mexico. And she turned to me in one of the last hours and said, Honey, do you have a good book to read? And I realized all, all my books are boxed up. My office is, is, is a mess. I, I don't know what I'm going to find. But sure enough, I found one book on my dresser upstairs in my room that had been there for some time that I had just planted on, the book sh- on my uh, side table of my bed and hadn't really thought much of it. It was this book, Knowing God, by J.I. Packer. How many of you have read this book? Yeah, a few of you. I figured uh, a number of you had, about 10% of you or so. I grabbed the only thing I could find, Knowing God, by J.I. Packer. I had read this book before in college, but I couldn't remember it very well. Now I'm not sure I'll ever forget this book, particularly chapter 2 which has been deeply impactful on my soul this summer. I'd like the ushers at this time, if they could, to uh, go ahead and pass out a selection from chapter 2 that I'd like to, to read with you. As they're getting ready to pass this out, don't read ahead yet, uh, but as they're beginning to pass this out, I want to explain the two kinds of Christians that J.I. Packer addresses in this part of the book. Not only addresses but two kinds of Christians that J.I. Packer rebukes in this book. And see if you fall into one of these two categories. The first category is this, the woe is me, Christians. The woe is me, Christians. This is my title, not, not Packer's. I'm summarizing for you. The woe is me, Christian, is the Christian who wallows all the time in their sorrow. They're life difficulties. They seek out drama. They revel in conflict. They love their own suffering because they love to talk about it. That they might receive endless attention and sympathy from others who hear of their suffering. The woe is me Christian is constantly focused on the bad, on the difficult, on the things that are not going right in their life. And they constantly want to tell everyone else about it that they might receive sympathy and grace. But joy is far from a woe is me kind of Christian. The second type of Christian that Packer will address is what I might call book knowledge Christians. Book knowledge Christians. 
This is kind of self-explanatory. These are those Christians who know a lot about God. They know the right answers. They're capable of teaching. They're well regarded for their knowledge, their perspective. They're doctrinally astute. They're theologically correct all the time. They know a lot about God. But they may not know a lot about who God is in relation to them. I want to read a significant part. Bear with me. But I want to read beginning at the top of chapter 2 all the way halfway down to the last page and see if you can soak in some of these words as he speaks about the woe is me Christians and the book knowledge Christians. Packer writes this, I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic achievement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I've known God and they haven't. The remark was a mere parenthesis, a passing comment on something I had said, but it stuck with me and set me thinking. Not many of us, I think, would ever naturally say that we have known God. The words imply a definiteness, a matter-of-factness of experience to which most of us, if we're all honest, have to admit that we are still strangers. We claim, perhaps, to have a testimony. We can rattle off our conversion story with the best of them. We say that we know God. This, after all, is what evangelicals are expected to say. But would it occur to us to say, without hesitation and with reference to particular events in our personal history, that we have known God? I doubt it. For I suspect that with most of us, experience of God has never been so vivid as that. Nor, I think, would many of us ever naturally say that in the light of the knowledge of God, which we have come to enjoy that past disappointments and past heartbreaks as the world counts heartbreaks, that they don't matter. For the plain fact is, to most of us, that they do matter. These woe is me Christians. We live with them as crosses, so we call them. Constantly we find ourselves slipping into bitterness, into apathy, into gloom as we reflect on them, which we frequently do. The attitude we show to the world is a sort of dried-up stoicism, miles removed from the joy unspeakable and full of glory which Peter took for granted that his readers were displaying. Poor souls, our friends say to us. How they've suffered! And that is just what we feel about ourselves. But these private mock heroics have no place at all in the minds of those who really know God. They never brood on might-have-beens. They never think of the things they've missed, only of what they've gained. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, wrote Paul. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. I want to know Christ. When Paul says... He counts the things he lost rubbish or dung. He means not merely that he does not think of them as having any value, but also he does not live with them constantly in his mind. What normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? 
Yet this, in effect, is what many of us do. It shows how little we have in the way of true knowledge of God. We need, frankly, to face ourselves at this point. We are perhaps orthodox evangelicals. Well, we can state the gospel clearly. We can smell unsound doctrine a mile away. If asked how one may know God, we can at once produce the right formula. We come to know God through Jesus Christ the Lord in virtue of His cross and mediation on the basis of the word of His promise by the power of the Spirit via a personal exercise of faith. And yet, the gaiety, the goodness, the unfetteredness of spirit, which are the marks of those who have known God, are rare among us. Rarer perhaps than they are in some other Christian circles where by comparison evangelical truth is less clearly and fully known. Here too, it would seem that the last may prove to be first and the first last. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about Him. To focus this point further, let me say two things. Note this well. Number one, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him. I'm sure that many of us have never really grasped this. We find in ourselves a deep interest in theology, which of course, which is of course a most fascinating and intriguing subject. In the 17th century, it was every gentleman's hobby. We read books of theological exposition and apologetics. We dip into Christian history. We study the Christian creed. We learn to find our way around the scriptures. Others, others appreciate our interest in these things. And we find ourselves give, asked to give our opinion in public on this or that Christian question, to lead study groups, to give papers, to write articles, to generally to, to accept responsibility, informal if not formal, for acting as teachers and arbiters of orthodoxy in our own Christian circles. Our friends, oh, they tell us how much they value our contribution. And this spurs us to further explorations of God's truth so that we may be equal to the demands made upon us. All very fine, all very fine. Yet interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing Him. We may know as much about God as Calvin knew. Indeed, if we study His works diligently, sooner or later we shall, sooner or later we shall, and yet all the time, unlike Calvin, may I say, we may hardly know God at all. Two, one can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. Oh, it depends on the sermon one hears, the books one reads, the company one keeps. In the analytical and technological age, there is no shortage of books on the church book tables or sermons from the pulpit on how to pray, how to witness, how to read our Bibles, how to tie their money, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to be a happy Christian, how to get consecrated, how to lead people to Christ, how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or in some cases, how to avoid receiving it, how to speak with tongues, or how to explain away Pente Pentecostal manifestations, and generally how to go through all the various motions which the teachers in question associate with being a Christian believer. Nor is there any shortage of biographies delineating the experiences of Christians in past days for our interested perusal. 
whatever else may be said about this state of affairs, it certainly makes it possible to learn a great deal secondhand about the practice of Christianity. Moreover, if one has been given a good bump of common sense, one may frequently be able to use this learning to help floundering Christians of less stable temperament to regain their footing and develop a sense of proportion about their troubles. And in this way, one may gain for oneself a fine reputation for being quite a pastor. Yet one can have all this and hardly know God at all. We come back then to where we started. The question is not whether we are good at theology or balanced, a horrible self-conscious word in our approach to problems of Christian living. The question is, can we say simply, honestly, not because we feel that as evangelicals we ought to, but because it is a plain matter of fact that we have known God and that because we have known God, the unpleasantness we have had or the pleasantness we have not had through being Christians does not matter to us. If we really knew God, this is what we would be saying. And if we are not saying it, that is a sign that we need to face ourselves more sharply with the difference between knowing God and merely knowing about Him. I do not identify very much with the woe is me Christian. That's why most of you had no idea of my health problems. I just keep it quiet. My wife knows me to be someone who uh, does not complain. That is one area where God has given me his great grace, an area of strength for me. I'm not a grumbler, I'm not a complainer, I'm someone who just presses on as best I can. So I don't identify very much with the woe is me portion of Packer's writing. But I know that many of you do, because I've listened to many of you talk Packer's commentary on Philippians 3 is apropos for you today. Why are you dreaming about manure? Why are you meditating on the rubbish and the dung of your life? Wake up. All that you have is in Christ. All that you will have in short order, is because of Christ. And because of what Jesus did for us and for you, that act ought to obliterate any selfish desire for you or I to ever wallow in self-pity and say, God, woe is me. You are rich in Christ. Regardless of whatever travails you have here, in this passing globe, you are rich in Christ. 
But while I don't identify as much with the woe is me Christian, I do identify very much with the book knowledge Christian. And I suspect many of you do too. Because we're a Bible church. We have many capable students and teachers of the word. And when Packer says at the top of page 26 that one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him, well, when I read that, I knew it was no accident that God had, that God had had me box up every book in my library except this one. I believe that statement best encapsulates, best encapsulates the reason for my personal sense of dryness. Even more so than listening to many woe is me Christians over the past few years. I believe this statement best encapsulates why I have been personally dry. It's not that I've been bearing burdens, though that is part of it. It's that I've had a knowledge of God about God without a knowledge of God. It's that I've uh, frequently taught, not always, but often, frequently taught in a way that would teach you and others about him without having my own experience with him in the word. So much of my teaching, much of my counsel, much of my leadership, I think, has been done in recent years as an exercise of book knowledge about God. And not always, though sometimes, a deepening personal relationship with him. And my, how those two prepositions are worlds apart about, of, knowledge about God. That is, that is one thing. Any of us can get that. That's not very hard to come by. Knowledge of God. Very few can find that. It is difficult to encounter. Too many Christians know much about God but have little to no intimacy with him. And sadly, the same can be said of pastors. My intimacy with God has been strong in the past, I think, but not in these recent years. And I am determined to restore that intimacy. That's perhaps the greatest fruit of my sabbatical. Not that I found great intimacy with God, but that God reminded me of just how little I have with him now. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus says something quite amazing. He says, John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'll read it again. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, the prophet speaking the words of the Lord says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, Judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. 
Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. I want to know the Lord, not for your sakes, but for mine. And I want you to join me in this quest. Not because of my request, but because that is what God created you to do. To know him. And those of you who have eternal life by faith in Christ, that is what eternal life is. It is to know God forever. And if in this quest I become a better pastor for you, and we become a more healthy, spiritually alive and thriving church, so be it. But I'm not doing this for you or for Coast. I'm doing it for me, that I might know God more deeply tomorrow than I do today. That all that I am and do in this life might not be a result of my knowledge about Him, but from what I have learned while sitting quietly with Him, before Him, listening to His still small voice. One final blessing of my sabbatical was the opportunity to go and visit other churches. Uh, I've gleaned much from that experience, having visited a number of them locally and, and up north, and uh, I want to share some of those gleanings in, in some forthcoming messages. But I was very particular, actually, about the churches that I visited. Uh, I did not base my schedule of visits uh, based on how the world measures churches, or for that matter, based on how many Christians measure churches. I didn't base it on how big they were. I didn't base my visits to churches on how many programs they had or how dynamic the pastor was. I ordered the churches that I was to visit based on which pastor I felt had a deeper relationship with God than me. I particularly thought about, and I am friends with uh, a number of them, though not all, I particularly thought about the kinds of pastors and leaders that are local around us. And I thought in particular of those pastors who I am jealous of, not of their success, not of their church, not of their fame or popularity, but jealous of how close they are with God. Without question, as I began to order these churches and pastors, I knew which church and which pastor I wanted to visit first. Uh, it was Pastor Ron Sukut, as Mike and Carrie know very well, and as many of you know. Pastor Ron Sukut of Cornerstone Community Church, who has also done a lot of work with us in Haiti. Uh, he's an incredible man. When I walked in to Cornerstone Community Church at 9.30, there was 40 people in the audience and I thought, wow, this looks like Coast. And then uh, by 9.45, uh, another 35.40 came in for a grand total of 75 to 80 people. A very small fellowship in San Clemente, but the church's size was certainly not a barometer of the quiet faithfulness of their pastor. Because you see, Ron Sukit knows the Lord. Anyone that meets him knows that, that, that my statement is self-evident. Ron Sukut knows the Lord. I admire him more than any other pastor, more than any other Christian for that matter, in Southern California. And I told him as much that Sunday. 
I know it blessed his heart to hear that, and that of his wife Diane, who's also a woman after God's own heart. Why do I bring up Ron and uh, his church? I bring up Ron because the knowledge of God and a successful church, as most Christians measure it, are not often the same thing. Ron knows God, but very few Christians would marvel at the size and the popularity of his church. Though I found it to be a very thriving community, very few people would, uh, would remain there having visited if they are a typical Orange County Christian. They would think, ah, it's a little too small. Not enough people, not big enough, not enough to do. And they would pay very little attention to the depth of intimacy that that man has with God. I'm not returning from sabbatical with grand visions of new church growth strategies. I'm returning from sabbatical with a desire to know the Lord more. And when I watch Ron Sukut, I see a man who, in as much as I know, at times he is pained by the idea that his church is not as thriving and growing and vibrant as he might wish it to be. Um, I remind him every time I see him that... uh, that he, just by his life, is teaching everyone around him how to know the Lord, how to be a better Christian, how to be the way God wants every Christian to be. The pursuit, the pursuit of the knowledge of God does not always translate to success as the world measures it. But the things of this world are passing away. The riches of this world are not much different than the sorrows of this world. They're all rubbish. They're all dung. They're all manure. And who wants to dream about manure? The riches and sorrows all pale in comparison to the man or woman who has chosen to fix their eyes on the majesty and glory of God and of Jesus Christ, His Son. As Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is what I have learned this summer. That is what I will be endeavoring to do, not for you, not for Coast, for me. I'd like you and I'd like to invite you to come to know God deeper with me as we walk forward together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we are uh, a people that confesses uh, that many times, Lord, we are uh, just looking at our own manure. We are wallowing in the sadness and the sorrowness and the woe is me moments. And there are many, God, and they are legitimate woes and trials, God. They're painful and they hurt. But God, you know that these trials, these difficulties, some that strike so close to home as in our own marriage, within our own children, within our own family, these difficulties, God, They are not to be meditated upon. You are to be meditated upon. And we, as we look up,
are to say, oh, but God, thank you that though this is happening on earth, I know what will happen on the last day. And God, we confess, uh, I confess, that I know, I think, quite a bit about you. Studied a lot, read a lot, went to school, couple schools. Think I know my way around, can give counsel, can teach, can lead a little bit with some competence in the things that are about you. But God, that's not what life is about. It's not about knowing the things about you. It's about knowing you. It's about being in relationship to you. And that means, Lord, we're going to have to give ourselves to you. Give all of ourselves to you. Let you see all of us, that we might see all of you. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you. For that is what we will be doing for all of eternity. May we begin that deep, intimate relationship with you now, in this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.